Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, and thank you for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. To start off this week's podcast, we have to go back in time a little bit. The year was 1986 here on the campus of Washington University in St. Louis. A student named Larissa Bayer was taking an art history seminar on Michelangelo. While working on a paper for the class, she did what students often do and went to the library. But instead of looking up one of many books written about Michelangelo, Larissa decided to check out Special Collections, the section of the library that keeps rare books and original documents. And at the time, we still had a card catalog, and they looked in the card catalog, and under M, there was a card that said Michelangelo, and they brought out a piece of paper. She looked at it. She couldn't read a word on it. She couldn't even tell whether it was Italian or Latin. Bill Wallace is a professor of art history and a scholar of Michelangelo. At the time, he was Larissa's teacher. After that visit to the library, weeks went by. Larissa assumed that if a piece of paper handwritten by Michelangelo was just sitting in the library, surely her professor already knew about it. So it wasn't until near the end of the semester that she mentioned what she had seen. I kind of questioned whether she really knew what she was looking at. She said, well, it looked like it was on kind of old paper. Wallace did not know about the document. Nobody knew about it. So even though he figured it was probably a photocopy or something that she had mistaken, he thought it was worth seeing for himself. It was a Friday afternoon. It was about 4 o'clock. The... the rare book collection was going to close at five and I said well why don't we walk up and take a look so we did and they brought out the document and I must say my heart kind of stopped because I've looked at a lot of Michelangelo documents in my life and as soon as I saw this one he has very distinctive handwriting we have a lot of Michelangelo writing and there's no doubt whatsoever that we have an authentic Michelangelo document in our Washington University Library. And it was completely unknown or completely unpublished at that time. This was a truly shocking thing to find. There are only a handful of Michelangelo documents anywhere in the United States. Most of them are in private collections. So it was only after Wallace calmed himself down a bit that he began to actually read the piece of paper. What unknown glimpse of Michelangelo's life might be revealed? Was it a letter, a poem, a plan for a sculpture? Well, not exactly. The first few lines say, I, Michelangelo Buonarroti, have in my house eight barrels of wine and about two barrels of foggiolioli. And that was a word that kind of threw me at first because I didn't recognize what it was. At, at first I thought they were beans, um, but it turned out to be cheap wine, bottom of the barrel type wine. And then he says, I have about a half barrel of vinegar and bocche quattro, four mouths. That is, he has four people he has to feed in this household. He's responsible for feeding four people. So why would a famous artist keep a detailed record of wine and vinegar in his house? At first, 
Wallace didn't know. It took a little bit of time to realize uh, what he was talking about. You know, uh, was this an inventory of his basement? <laughs> a detail on the reverse side of the paper provided some clues. It turns out that this list of wine and vinegar was written in the year 1529, and that is important. When Michelangelo died years later in his late 80s, which, by the way, was an extraordinarily long time for a person to live during the Renaissance, he left behind hundreds of pages of personal documents, financial documents, legal documents, and more. So did his family and patrons. But look for documents from 1529, and you're not going to find much of anything. That's because this was an extremely dangerous time in the artist's life. In 1529, Florence was at war. The conflict had started a couple of years earlier. In 1527, Florence decided to declare itself independent. And this is the moment when a Florentine was elected pope. And Clement VII was really distressed that his own native city declared itself independent of the papacy. So Michelangelo had to decide, am I going to choose Florence or am I going to choose the pope? And he was already working for the pope, and he chose Florence. And that's because, for first and foremost, an Italian uh, is the city that they were born in. They are first and foremost a Florentine and only secondarily an Italian. And that's true even today. And so Michelangelo chose to side with Florence. And so for three years of his life, he devoted himself to the city of Florence. And in a sense, he's a rebel against the very power that had previously he had been hired by. And not just any rebel. You probably think of Michelangelo as the person who painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel or the sculptor who made the David. But in 1529, Michelangelo was Florence's governor general of fortifications, building protections to keep out the enemy. The city was under siege, and food was scarce. The Florentine government required its people to declare how much food and liquid they had on hand. This sort of declaration is what Wallace's student found in the library. This document is a declaration of liquid goods that are left in the house. And it indicates the very dire straits that the citizenry is going through at this time. There are 50 people dying a day from starvation, and Michelangelo is responsible not only for his own household, but for the protection of his entire city. So really, this was an extremely dangerous moment. And as we all know, war is not a moment when a lot of documentation takes place, or when documents are made, they're generally destroyed. And so this was a moment of real a, a real void in Michelangelo's life in terms of what we really know what ha was happening. And so our document comes from a, uh, gives us a tiny glimpse into a very, very dangerous time in his life. Dr. Wallace has been studying the life and works of this one man for close to 40 years, and he's still constantly fascinated by what he finds. The rare document in the Washington University Library helps us understand why. When it comes to Michelangelo, there's always more to discover. In some ways, it seems like this one genius lived many lives all rolled into one. 
I think it's one of the things I've most enjoyed about Michelangelo is that, yes, we all know that he's a sculptor, and then we think, oh yes, he's also painted the Sistine ceiling. And then, oh yes, he built St. Peter's, he's an architect. And then I think very few people know that he's a really important uh, poet. He, we have some 300 poems that Michelangelo wrote. He's one of the most important poets of the Renaissance. But I also think uh, he's the greatest engineer of the Renaissance. We always think of Leonardo as the great Renaissance engineer, but Leonardo thought of a lot of things that did nothing. Michelangelo actually did it. He carried things out. He accomplished remarkable engineering feats. And one of them is that he built fortifications, and these fortifications actually worked. So if you think about a Renaissance man, I mean, really, Michelangelo is the Renaissance man in accomplishing these things in surprisingly diverse fields of creativity and accomplishment. It's a little hard to even wrap your head around how all of these diverse areas of creativity and expertise could coexist in one person. Luckily, the immense amount of documentation that Michelangelo left behind provides scholars a window into how all of the pieces fit together. When writing a book about Michelangelo's work, designing and building sections of the San Lorenzo Church in Florence, Wallace came across a piece of paper that revealed Michelangelo the master architect, Michelangelo the project manager, and Michelangelo the poet, all at the same moment. So while he was at work drawing and designing moldings and bottoms and bases for columns, he'll then start to write poetry on the same sheet of paper where he's designing a column. And at the same time, we know that there are 50 people in the same room with him, all carving sculpture and making all kinds of noise. And, and yet he's writing like Petrarchan poetry on the same piece of paper. And we can tell that he was doing it at the same time because it's folded and it's all messed up. And it's very clear that it's being done in the workshop and not at home when it's nice and quiet and clear. And everybody says when we read Michelangelo's poetry that it has a kind of rocky, rough quality to it. And so there's a very evident transference of character between his sculpting and his poetry, which is evident right here on this same piece of paper. When I first heard this story, my immediate thought was, okay, let's forget the word genius. This man was some sort of superhuman, right? I asked Wallace whether he felt the same. After more than 30 years of studying this one life, is he still in awe? Or does Michelangelo seem more like a regular person, someone you could really get to know? The answer for Wallace is both. I've been working on Michelangelo close to 40 years, and I've come nowhere close to exhausting my interest in him. And in fact, he gets more and more interesting. On one hand, I have greater respect for him and more awe of his ability and his accomplishments. On the other hand, I also realize the fallibility and the human quality. These human qualities are revealed once again through documents and research. These pieces of paper don't only tell the story of an artistic genius. They tell the day-to-day -day details of a man's life, even details that in other situations you probably wouldn't want to know. Michelangelo does tell his nephew every kidney stone he passes and how large it is. 
And then because, you know, you don't buy clothes at Walmart in the Renaissance, you buy cloth. And he records every si every piece of cloth that he buys and what size it is and what color it is. So we can, in a sense, reconstruct his entire closet. <laughs> so we can get pretty close to getting some pretty amazing detail in terms of what he ate. He records many times what he ate for the day and that sort of thing, especially when he's having distress, stomach distress and things like that. So we have a wonderful sheet of paper where he records the three um, meals that he's had in the last three days. <laughs> Over the course of his career, Wallace has used these types of records to piece together a rich picture of Michelangelo's life and also his art. Looking at one of Michelangelo's beautiful sculptures, it's difficult to imagine how a huge piece of hard rock came to be transformed into flowing robes or human flesh. By piecing together the clues found in documents, Wallace brings to life a vision of the process and the person. We tend to celebrate the Sistine ceiling and the carving of the David, but carving marble is a lot of work. It's just very, very difficult manual labor. And transporting a block of marble that weighs eight tons, 90 miles, you have to figure out how to do it. And nobody had done it since the Romans a thousand years before. And Michelangelo was doing it on the scale of the Romans. And so he was, in a sense, reinventing the, the logistics of transport and mechanics and the, the making of art on the scale and the complexity of the Roman Empire all over again. And that's what we call the Renaissance, is the rebirth of antiquity. And so in a sense, Michelangelo really is at the center of helping that happen in, in certain ways. And so I think it helps us just appreciate all the more that, to realize the, the technical difficulty of carving a sculpture that's 17 feet high. To imagine setting that block up and having it be nothing but raw stone and, and imagining a figure in it and realizing that as you carve the head, you can't even see the feet because you're on a scaffold that you can't, the scaffolding is blocking your view of the middle part of the figure and then you're at the middle part of the figure you can't see the feet the, the head or painting the Sistine ceiling some of those prophets are 14 feet tall and they're on a curved surface and you have to imagine what that figure is going to look like a, a figure 14 feet high on a curved surface seated it's got to look exactly right perfect from 60 feet down below it's really just astonishing that you know, he has the capacity and the ability to carry these out. And, and yet we don't even think about the technical difficulty because we're so overwhelmed by the artistic accomplishment. I like what Johann Goethe said about the Sistine ceiling. Until you have seen the Sistine ceiling, you have no idea what humankind is capable of accomplishing. And I think that's a remarkable statement. For much more on the life of this inspiring artist, you can check out any of William Wallace's several books on Michelangelo, 
including Michelangelo, the artist, the man, and his times. Or for many more ideas to explore from the scholars at Washington University in St. Louis, please visit our website, holdthatthought.wustl.edu. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter, or find our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, or SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening.